Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Revelation 12. And as you are turning there, I will tell a quick story. I have been reading through books of the New Testament in my personal Bible study recently. And this past Tuesday, I happened to come across 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And in verse 7, Paul describes the emotion which will flood the hearts of believers the moment Christ returns with his mighty angels. So let me ask you, which emotion do you think will flood the hearts of believers the moment Christ returns? Which feeling do you think you will experience in that moment? What would you pick? Maybe awe or wonder or amazement or joy or maybe fear or contentment or happiness or I can't think of any others right now, but surely we probably will experience all of those things and more at Christ's second coming. And yet, interestingly, uh, Paul does not point to any of those emotions in this verse to describe what believers will experience in that moment. So what is this emotion that will flood our hearts the moment Christ returns? According to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, the emotion that will flood the hearts of believers the moment Christ returns is relief. Relief. The complete unburdening of a lifetime's worth of stressors and sorrows and sins and sickness and suffering in a single moment. That decompressing exhale our souls so desperately long for, but never quite seem to manage in this life. Relief. And I think one of the reasons why verses like these are so hope-giving to many of us is because we have experienced how difficult life is. Life is often hard. It's many times confusing and disorienting and tiring and wearying. And as Joe Jones said a few weeks ago, sometimes it's flat out weird. And oftentimes, honestly, life is just sad. It's easy to feel lost in this life. And I don't think it's a mistake that the Bible, time and time again, describes our present experience living in this broken world as a wilderness. I think that's a very appropriate word, wilderness. Now, you might say, why wilderness? Well, before we dive into our text for today, which does describe our present experience living in this broken world as a wilderness, let me just point to four characteristics of life in the wilderness. And you tell me if you can relate to any of these. Four characteristics of life in the wilderness, and three of these came from one commentator, so I cannot take credit for them. But what is life like in the wilderness? Four W's, and these are up on the screen. Number one, the wilderness is a place of wandering. Often when we are in the wilderness, we don't know really where we are going, and we also don't know how long it's going to take to get there. If life to you feels confusing or unclear or needlessly unproductive, kind of like you are wandering around in a Middle Eastern desert year after year after year with ever actually arriving at the promised land, might be a sign that you are in the wilderness because the wilderness is a place of wandering. Number two, the wilderness is a place of wanting. 
Many commentators note that the biblical theme of wilderness might be better described as a desert because it's usually a place of dryness and barrenness and hunger and thirst and longing and wanting. The wilderness is a place where even in the greatest moments of life, we still feel this this longing for something, something more, something fuller, something deeper, something more eternal. The wilderness is a place where in the, the hardest moments of life, we get this feeling that this, this just isn't the way life is supposed to be. I wasn't planning on initially sharing this, but I went to a funeral of a close friend yesterday. Uh, she was 19 years old when she died. And her boyfriend had an opportunity to read a letter that he had written to her shortly before she passed away. And in this letter, she talked about how much she loved him and how much he made her a better person and how much she loved their times together. And then there was one line in it that instantly sent chills down my spine. She said, I cannot wait to grow old with you. And in that moment, there was this hush in the room, and I think everyone was thinking the same thing. And it was something like, this isn't right. This isn't the way life was meant to be. Tim Keller makes an interesting observation, and he he tells us that oftentimes the wilderness exposes our idols. He says, do you know what a wilderness experience is? Often it's when the thing you have looked to as the real hope of your life the thing that really makes you feel like a worthwhile person, your real savior, your real Lord, your real bread and drink runs out or you find that it's inadequate. This is what it means to be in the wilderness. It's a place of wanting. So the wilderness is a place of wandering. It's a place of wanting. Thirdly, the wilderness is a place of waiting. Just as the Israelites had to wait 40 years to reach the promised land, so also often we have to wait for God's promises to come into fruition in our own lives. The wilderness is very rarely a place where trials are short and sweet. Rather, the wilderness always requires things like like trust and faith and endurance And that's because the wilderness is a place of waiting. So the wilderness is a place of wandering, it's a place of wanting, it's a place of waiting. Fourth and finally, the wilderness is a place of weakness. This might be the most prominent feeling we experience in the wilderness. The wilderness always drives us to a place of desperation and dependence. The wilderness brings us to the end of ourselves and makes us feel like, I I simply cannot, I cannot keep going by my own strength. This is the wilderness. It's a place of wandering. It's a place of wanting. It's a place of waiting. It's a place of weakness. So what if this is you? What if you can relate to one or more of these characteristics? Genuinely, what hope do you have and do I have as we live in the wilderness? Well, our text for today gives us three wonderful reasons for hope. So let's pray, and then we will dive into this. Oh, Lord. I pray that you would fill us with hope and endurance this morning through your word. For man does not live by bread alone, but from every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. So, Lord, feed us and nourish us this morning 
For if you will not feed us and nourish us by your word, what will? So come, Holy Spirit, and feed us and nourish us for your glory and our joy. In Christ's name, amen. Why can we have hope even as we live in the wilderness? According to Revelation 12, we can have hope because with us in the wilderness is a Lord who will nourish us, a lamb who will defend us, and a lover who will save us. So let's look at these one at a time, beginning with, uh, with us in the wilderness is a Lord who will nourish us. We find this in verses one through six, so please follow along as I read, and I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Revelation 12, verses one through six. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. This woman is a reference to the people of God. First Israel, who gave birth to the Messiah, and then ultimately to the church of all ages. So this woman is a picture of us. Clothed with the sun there, it has numerous Old Testament allusions, but it also reminds us of Revelation 1.16, in which Jesus himself is described as having a face shining like the sun in full strength, indicating that this woman the church, us, is clothed with the glory and presence and protection of Christ himself. Let's keep reading. She had the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. The 12 stars are a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel and secondarily to the 12 apostles of the New Testament church, which is another nod to her identity as the people of God. Verse 2, she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. We are told in verse 9 that this dragon refers to Satan himself. His dragon-like form reminds us that he is the fully grown serpent of Genesis 3.15. His blood-red color reminds us that he is a murderer. His seven heads remind us that he is the completeness of evil. As Liam Goliger put it, Satan is evil incarnate. Verse 4, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Many, many argue that this is a reference to Satan taking a third of the angels out of heaven with him. Others think it refers to Christian martyrs. Either way, the point is that this dragon has power and that he's dangerous. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Okay, this third character, the child, is a clear reference to Christ himself. He is the male offspring promised in Genesis 3.15. He is the ruler promised in Psalm 2. He is the eternal king on David's throne promised in 2 Samuel 7. This child is Christ himself. Verse 6, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Sinclair Ferguson notes that the 1,260 days point to the whole period between the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ and the return of our Lord Jesus Christ in glory, meaning that this time of wilderness is now. It is the present struggle facing the church as we eagerly await the return of Christ. So just three observations from this section. One about the dragon, one about the child, one about the woman. And I'll read through them right now together, and then we'll go through them one at a time. And these are up on the screen as well. Number one, the dragon, powerful as he may be, 
is powerless against the child. Number two, the child, helpless as he may seem, is the sovereign Lord. And number three, the woman, though into the wilderness she may flee, has a place of nourishment prepared by God himself. So first we see that this dragon, powerful as he may be, is powerless against the child. Uh, Look back at verses four through five for a moment. It says that the dragon wanted to devour the child, but then the child was born. And then look at the end of verse five. It says her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That term caught up to God is a reference to Christ's ascension. So here in this single verse, we have the story of Christ's birth all all the way through his ascension. But what's interesting about this story is that there is no reference at all here to Christ's death. It's almost as if his death isn't even worth mentioning in this context because it had no power against him. I understand that this is a vision, but you could imagine walking up to John and saying, John, what about Christ's death? Doesn't that show that Satan devoured him, that the the dragon devoured him? And John says, his death? What do you mean? I mean, yes, of course, Christ died, but what does that have to do with Satan devouring him? Oh, you, you don't think that that was Satan's doing, do you? Don't you remember the words of Christ himself when he said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Satan could not devour Christ even through his death. And if not even death can destroy Christ, what can? So first observation, the dragon, powerful as he may be, is powerless against the child. Second observation, this child, helpless as he may seem, is the sovereign Lord. Notice the very end of verse 5 again. It says that this child was caught up to God and to his throne. Liam Goliger notes that this description of being caught up to God's throne implies that this child is God himself. Only God sits on God's throne. This child, helpless as he may seem, is the sovereign Lord. This is fullness of God in helpless babe. Who would have dreamed or ever foreseen that we would hold God in our hands? The giver of life was born in the night, revealing God's glorious plan to save the world. This child, helpless as he may seem, is the sovereign Lord. Number three, The woman, though into the wilderness she may flee, has a place of nourishment prepared by God himself. To say that another way, in the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming, we, the church, we are described as being in the wilderness, but also as being nourished by God. Two descriptions we will see again in verse 14. So here we have a great contrast of two radically different destinies. On the one hand, we have the destiny of the devil and all of those who follow in his footsteps. You could call them little dragons, and we will come back to that in a moment. And on the other hand, we have the destiny of the church. And notice this. Notice that both characters in this story have hungry souls and look to the child for nourishment. But consider the contrast, and this is up on the screen. Destiny number one, the devil and his children. The devil is hungry, and how does he try to satisfy his soul's hunger? He tries to devour the child. He thinks he can satisfy his appetite by destroying the Lord and by becoming his own Lord. And this is precisely what the devil's children try to do to satisfy their hunger as well. But we're told in verse 5 that the child, Christ, flies away from Satan, leaving him empty 
angry and alone. Verse 8 says that he is left without a place. And this is the sad destiny of the devil and all who rebel against Christ. Everyone who seeks to satisfy their soul's hunger by devouring Christ and becoming their own lords, they always walk away feeling empty, angry, and alone. But there's hope. Look at the destiny of the church and all who repent of their selfishness and submit to Christ. Destiny number two is the church, the woman. She too is hungry, but instead of looking to devour the child, she looks to be nourished by the child. She looks to satisfy her appetite, not by becoming her own Lord, but by submitting to this child as her Lord. And in the end, we will see that this woman actually flies to the child, verse 14, and there in his presence, she is nourished, satisfied, and given a place prepared by God himself. And this is the beautiful picture of God's promise for you and for me in our wilderness as well. Christ does not promise to take us out of the wilderness before he returns. In fact, oftentimes he leads us deeper into the wilderness. But our hope does not come from, being, uh, from escaping the wilderness in this life. Our hope is that with us in the wilderness is a Lord who will nourish us with his presence. If I could take that one step further, Christ doesn't only intend to nourish us in the wilderness, but he also intends to sanctify us through the wilderness. If I could put it in this way, Christ often uses our wilderness experiences to undragon us. Do you remember the scene in the voyage of the Dawn Treader where Aslan, the Christ figure, he strips the dragon scales off of Eustace in order to restore him back to his true humanity. This is what God often does for us in the wilderness as well. When we, like Satan, become beasts, little dragons, hoping to devour Christ and become our own lords, God graciously protects us by bringing us into the wilderness to undragon us, to strip off our scales of idolatry, to restore our humanity and to remind us that submitting to his lordship is the only thing that will truly satisfy our hungry souls. I love the way Marcy Wolin put it, uh, and she, she got some of this from the women's Bible study in the book that you guys are reading through right now. So if some of you, this sounds familiar, that's why. Uh, but Marcy Wolin says this. She says, when God brought Israel into the wilderness, his intention was not only to take them out of Egypt, but also to take Egypt out of them. And he often does this for us, too, by bringing us into the wilderness and stripping us of the very things we would try to rely on, things that would never actually satisfy our souls. There are often three steps on the road to glory. Number one, God takes us out of slavery. Number two, God brings us into the wilderness and takes slavery out of us. Number three, God brings us into the promised land. So why can we have hope even as we live in the wilderness? Because with us in the wilderness is a Lord who will nourish us and sanctify us. And number two, we can have hope because with us in the wilderness is a lamb who will defend us. And we see this in verses 7 through 12. So please follow along as I read. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. So here we get the heavenly perspective of what we just saw in verses one through six. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. 
And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accusers of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. One of the biggest difficulties we will face in the wilderness is accusation. Now you might say, why? Well, it's very, very low-hanging fruit for Satan. Satan says, do you know why God has brought you here to this, this wilderness, this wasteland, this desert? He's brought you here because you deserve it. He's punishing you for your sin. He's brought you here to destroy you. He hates you. He has left you. And there, in that moment, when you feel Satan's blasphemous accusations, you have two options. Number one, you can believe his lies. Number two, you can combat his lies with something. So how do we combat Satan's accusations? Look back at verse 11. And they have conquered him, the accuser, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony or the gospel, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Notice what this text does not say. This text does not say they conquered him by trying harder. They conquered him by vowing to do better. They conquered him by their penitence. They conquered him by gritting their teeth and, and, and sinning a little bit less. They conquered him by mustering up a little bit stronger faith. No. It says they conquered him by the blood of of the Lamb. Don Carson gives a very powerful illustration of this reality that I heard like seven years ago, and it's stuck with me ever since, so I'm excited to share it with you guys today. He says, picture two Jews by the names of Smith and Brown, two remarkably Jewish names. <laughs> the day before the first Passover, so by the way, context, you will remember that the Passover is when the Israelites put blood on their doorposts and the angel of death passed over the houses with the blood, sparing their firstborn sons. That is the Passover. The day before the first Passover, Smith and Brown are having a little discussion in the land of Goshen. And Smith says to Brown, boy, are you, are you a little bit nervous of, of what's going to happen tonight? Brown says, well, God told us what to do through his servant Moses. You, you don't need to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the lamb and daubed the two doorposts with blood, put blood on the lintel? Haven't you done that? You're already in pack to go. You're, you're going to eat the whole Passover meal with your family? Well, uh, of course I've done that. I'm not, I'm not stupid. But it's, it's still pretty scary when you think of it. You know, all the things that have happened around here recently, the, the flies and the river turning into blood, you know, it's pretty awful. And now there's a threat of the firstborn being killed. You know, it's it's all right for you. You've got three sons. I, I've only got one. And, and I love my Charlie. 
Uh, and, and the angel of death is passing through tonight. I, I know what God says. I put the blood there, but it's still pretty scary. I, I'll be glad when this night is over. And the other one responds with, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. That night, the angel of death swept through the land. Which one lost his son? And the answer, of course, is neither. Because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised, but on the ground of the blood of the lamb. That's what silences the accuser. The blood silences the accuser as he accuses us before God, and it silences our consciences when Satan accuses us directly. How many times do we writhe in agony, asking if God can still love us or care for us after we have done such stupid, sinful, rebellious things, even after being a Christian for 5, 10, 20, 40, 60 years? What are you going to say in those moments to try to silence the accuser? Are you going to say, oh, I, uh, I, I tried hard, you know, it, uh, I, I did my best. It, it was a bad moment. No, no, no. You say, I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. We overcome the accuser by the blood of the lamb. This is the ground of all human assurance before God. This is the ground of our faith. It's not the intensity of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves. We overcome the accuser on the ground of the blood of the lamb. If you are united to this lamb, if you are resting in his atoning blood for your salvation, Satan's accusations against you have no power. The worst Satan can do is accuse you of being a sinner. But we already know that. In fact, the reality of our sinfulness is only the first verse in our song of redemption. As Martin Luther famously put it, and this is up on the screen, he says, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Yes, because of Christ, we can confidently sing as we did today, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word, the word of Christ, shall fell him. Why can we have hope even as we live in the wilderness? Because with us in the wilderness is the Lord who will nourish us, a lamb who will defend us, and finally, a lover who will save us. Look back now at verses 13 through 14. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. So Satan saw, okay, I can't devour Christ. I'm going to pursue his people, the church. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Real quick note on that statement that she was given the two wings of the great eagle. Tom Schreiner notes that this is not indeed a reference to the United States Air Force. (laughs) 
but rather it's a hyperlink to Exodus 19.4, in which God, after freeing Israel from Egypt, he says this. He says, you yourselves have seen what I have done to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to, and we think he's going to say the wilderness because that's where he brought them. But he says, I have bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. It's almost as if God uses the wilderness and his presence here interchangeably. Don Carson notes that when the first century Jew, imagine being a first century Jew, heard the term wilderness, instantly it would have brought back memories of two things. Number one, difficulty. Number two, intimacy with God. Often it is in the wilderness, in our wandering, in our wanting, in our waiting, in our weakness, that we experience some of the deepest and richest times of intimacy with God. And why is that? Well, it's because it is in the wilderness when we are stripped of every other earthly comfort and potential idol and lover that we would be tempted to worship and we have no other choice but to lean in to the only lover who can truly satisfy our hungry souls. Look at how God put it in Hosea 2. And this is up on the screen. Look at what God says in Hosea 2. He says, Israel went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Satan accuses us in the wilderness. Christ allures us in the wilderness. Christ uses the wilderness to protect us from losing our first love. He uses the wilderness to help us to see and believe and cherish that he alone is sufficient. Do you remember what Moses said to God? Uh, it was in like Exodus 32 or 33, somewhere right around there, when he says, Lord, if you will not go with us, if your presence will not go with us, do not bring us up from here. In other words, Lord, don't take us out of the wilderness. Don't take us into the promised land if you won't go with us. In that statement, in part, encapsulates a large part of the purpose of the wilderness in our lives. God wants to free you and to free me from slavery to Egypt, in slavery to idolatry, so completely that we get to the point where we can truly say from the bottom of our hearts with an honest conscience, Lord Jesus, I would rather live my whole life in the wilderness with you than to go into the promised land without you. And once we get to the point where we can truly say this with honest hearts, then we are ready to enjoy the promised land in the way that God intended. Here's how Scott Hubbard put it. And this is up on the screen. It's a longer quote, uh, so might want to get comfortable here. Um, here we go. He says, When Israel was in the wilderness, the giver of bread took away bread so that Israel might see where life comes from. Life, true, deep, abundant life, does not come from bread or from any of God's other gifts. Life comes from the words of the living God, words better than gold, sweeter than honey, more nourishing than Canaan's best wheat. Now, here we go. If Israel was ever going to stand in the promised land with their hands full of bread and say, I know how to abound, they would first need to walk through the wilderness with God's word in their hearts and say, I know how to be brought low. 
They would need to look around at a wasteland of sand and sing for joy to the one who gives and takes away. And so it is with us. Often God teaches us how to handle his gifts rightly by first withholding them. Those chastened by the wilderness will enjoy God's gifts, not abuse them. They will delight in them, not put their hope in them. They will bless God for them, not forget him in them. If you are in Christ, God has not brought you to this desert to starve you. He has brought you here to teach you that man does not live by bread alone. Your life, your hope, and your joy are not hidden away in some elusive land of plenty, but in the Christ who died and rose again to save you for himself, the one who is your life, your pleasure, your milk and honey, your all, I would add, your promised land. I want to make one quick comment before we move on. If I were to revise Hubbard's words or add to it a little bit or clarify something that he said here, it would be something like this. Some of you have experienced kinds of suffering that, quite frankly, words can't even describe. Many of you have experienced suffering that I haven't personally experienced, and honestly, I can't even imagine. And I want to be clear that the message to take home today is not, once you learn your lesson, then God will take you out of your wilderness. God is not playing games with you, throwing you into a pit and seeing if you can crack the code to unlock his hidden lesson. Often we will not see why God allowed a wilderness experience until eternity. And the fact that you don't understand what why God allowed something does not mean that you are doing something wrong. Suffering simply cannot be fully explained, nor can it be boxed up into a nice little lesson. So please, don't feel pressured while you are suffering to say something to others like, well, you know, I see why God brought this into my life. He just wanted to teach me this lesson. Number one, it's not that simple. And number two, God... God doesn't call you to pretend like it is that simple. And secondly, and maybe more importantly, let's never minimize someone else's pain by saying something similar. Let's never walk up to someone who is suffering and say, well, I can see why God brought this into your life. He, he wanted to teach you this lesson, this very simple lesson. And it's simply fill in the blank. While there might be some truth in these comments, number one, oftentimes it's not that simple, and number two, usually it's not helpful. So let's avoid making unhelpful comments like these. Once again, in this life, we simply won't understand fully why God allowed the wilderness experiences that he did. And in these situations, our job, our job when we are suffering is not to figure it all out. In our job when we're walking alongside someone who's suffering is not to help them figure it all out. It's to be present with them and to remind them of God's presence and his promises. Let's finish reading now in verses 15 through 17. It says, The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the, the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. 
Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Two quick things that I love about this section. Number one, verse 17, just like verse 11, reminds us that we are not in this wilderness alone. Not only is Jesus with us in the wilderness, but we also have one another in this wilderness. We are not meant to walk through the wilderness by ourselves. God has given us his body, his people to walk with us and to help us through wilderness experiences. And so please, if you are in a wilderness experience right now even, talk to someone in, in the church. God, intends, God does not intend for you to walk through this alone. Number two, second thing I love about this section is this picture of the earth coming to the help of the woman and swallowing the river out of the dragon's mouth. Why do I love this? Why do I love this picture? Well, quite simply, it reminds us of every epic story we cherished as children, right? Can you think back to all the stories we have heard and loved in which the earth or the animal kingdom somehow in some way comes to the help and saves the good guys right before they're destroyed? That's the picture we have here. It's a beautiful, vivid picture of salvation, And that's because Jesus does not only intend to nourish you and sanctify you and defend you in the wilderness, but he also intends, praise the Lord, to one day save you, to save us from the wilderness. I love one simple question that a commentary asks about verse 17. So you see there in your text, it says that the dragon became furious. The commentary asks this simple question. Does the dragon's anger here show that he is winning or that he is losing? In Christ, we not only have a Lord who will nourish us and a lamb who will defend us, but we also have a victorious lover who will save us and unite us to himself as his bride. And this, this is the ultimate promised land. It's intimacy with Christ himself. It's something that we can experience. We can experience his rest and his relief and his salvation even now in this life. Eternal life for the believer begins now. And the reason why Jesus is uniquely able to save us and bring us to himself is because Jesus endured the wilderness on our behalf. He lived in perfect obedience in our place. When we were faithless, he was faithful. He he defeated Satan in the wilderness. When the dragon came to devour Christ, Jesus conquered him by the word of God and ultimately by his blood. Jesus endured the desert of the cross, crying out, I thirst so that we would never have to experience true thirst again. I wonder, do you trust this Christ as your Lord and your Lamb and your Lover and your Savior? Are you resting in the blood of this Lamb for the forgiveness of your sins and for your ultimate salvation, and for restoration with God. Jesus Christ, this beautiful Lord and Lamb and Lover, is calling you to himself today. I'll close with this. C.S. Lewis tells a powerful story on the very last page of the voyage of the Don Treader. Some of you might remember this. Uh, You'll remember Aslan, who interestingly appears as a lamb in this scene, He's about to send Lucy and Edmund away from Narnia and back into their world where there is once again suffering and difficulty. So you can think of this as Aslan sending them back into the wilderness right after they got a taste of the promised land. 
Lucy and Edmund, understandably, are beside themselves. They dread the thought of being taken away from Narnia. But then Lucy makes a striking comment about why she is so upset. Remember what she says here? She says to Aslan, it, it isn't Narnia that we can't live without, you know. It's you. How can we live in our world if we can never meet you? But you shall meet me, dear one, said Aslan. Are, are you there too, sir, said Edmund? I am, said Aslan. But there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This is the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there. May we all, as we cling to Christ in our wilderness experiences, grow in our knowledge, in our love, and in our faith in him, for he alone is our Lord and our lamb and our lover. Let's pray.